Hello! Welcome back to the Celtics Lab podcast. I'm here with Alex Goldberg and Dr. Justin Quinn, as I always am. We have to talk about Jalen Brown's wrist, we have to talk about Ben Simmons, and we have to talk about a giveaway that we're doing, but we also have to welcome in a special guest. Seth Partnow is a staff writer at The Athletic and an analytics guru extraordinaire in the NBA, and he has a new book out available for pre-order and coming out next week. It's called The Mid-Range Theory, Basketball's Evolution and the Age of Analytics. Let's give a warm Celtics Lab welcome to Mr. Seth Partnow. Seth, how are you? We're doing fine, thanks. I was expecting like uh, canned sound effects there as you were. I, I just hear applause in my head okay, all yeah. the time. So. <laughs> all in post. Yeah. Uh, so Seth is here to talk about the Celtics. And of course, um, in the Celtics lab portion of the programming, we'll talk about the book. So Seth, really and truly, thanks for your time. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, appreciate you inviting me on. So Seth, uh, your book is a pretty big deal. Let's let's be honest. But our good friend Alex also has a creative pursuit uh, that he uh, is going to see come to fruition pretty soon. Alex, you are playing December 9th in Somerville. What's the name of the the venue? Uh, we are playing December 9th, Somerville. This is, of course, my band Divine Sweater. Uh, if you liked the music at the top uh, that you just heard, that's us. Uh, we're, we're playing lots of shows, all kind of rapidly coming together. Uh, I believe we are playing at the Rockwell, which is going to be a venue. It's, it's I. Let me just double check. All right. Well, you'll get back to us. Anyways, Alex is playing uh, <laughs> a show with um, a band I love called Beef. And to celebrate, uh, we have a C-Laboration giveaway that uh, you should check out our Twitter page in the next few days about. And Alex, I'll give you time later to do a, a proper plug. Yeah, no, let's just cut that and we'll just... <laughs> uh, Dr. Quinn. And I'm keeping that in. No. Quinn, can, you top, can you top a book or uh, a concert series? Can I what? Can you top a book coming out or a t- concert series? Uh, lately, no. Lately, no. Okay, me neither. All right, uh, let's get into it. So uh, congratulations to our creatives and congratulations to Dr. Quinn's uh, easy days. So uh, let's start with Jalen. Uh, he's out. You, may, you probably know about this. Uh, as of last Friday, he'll be out for one to two weeks. So he possibly will be back for that Los Angeles Lakers game on the 19th. First and foremost, big deal, little deal, small deal. Seth, you are your unbiased eyes. I'll go to you first. Big deal for the Celtics, small deal, something in between? Um, Something in between. Um, short term, I don't think a big deal. Uh, that They might scuffle a little without him, but it's a week or two in November. So kind of whatever. On the other hand, hamstrings are tricky. And they're fine coming back until they're not. And it's easily the kind of thing that can sort of linger all season and derail a season, um, you know, if they're not careful and or lucky. Again, it's the kind of thing where you can you can do everything right and come back. And the third step you take, oh, there it goes again. And, and uh, you're back on the shelf for two or three weeks. So um, it's, yeah, it's concerning, but not especially damaging is, is I think what I would say. Sure. Uh, Dr. Quinn, you were kind of okay with the prognosis. Can you talk us through that? Well, as Seth was hinting about, it's really important that they rest him and they, they take care of this because it is a recurrent issue. I am a little concerned about what it's going to do to the chemistry of the team, but I mean, I'm already concerned with the chemistry of the team. So it's just, I don't know. You know, counterfactuals are nice uh, had Jalen come back and been able to play immediately, but, you know, it's not a good thing. Yeah, uh, I'm, I guess it's, it's not. I mean, best best wishes to Jalen, and uh, let's hope that you guys are right, that it doesn't doesn't linger. Alex, in, in Jalen's absence, it looks like Schroeder is going to start alongside Smart. And from, a, I mean, we have an analytics guy on the call, but I'm going to go to you first, Alex. Uh is that a good thing, a bad thing? What do you? What's your read on the Schroeder Smart pairing? I think, given the circumstances, it's probably fine. Uh, at the beginning of the season, the Schroeder Smart pairing, I was frankly a little dubious about. Um, but as the season has progressed, they've gotten a little better on the court together. Um, the big thing that Schroeder provides that uh, maybe like an Aaron Neesmith or 
other possible starting players don't provide is Schroeder is probably the best rim attacker on the team who isn't Jalen. He, he might be the best rim attacker, period, to be honest. Um, and that rim pressure is pretty invaluable to everything that the Celtics are trying to run offensively. So I think it will be interesting. I do think given Smart's openly stated desire to be more involved as a playmaker and setup guy for this offense, uh, I'm a little concerned about ball sharing duties between Schroeder and Smart and whether that's going to work out. And it might become the case that at some point the Celtics decide that they have to go with one of those guys and Aaron Neesmith in the starting lineup, something that I think is a very realistic possibility if uh, these first few games without Jalen don't go well. But uh, I think for now, it's not crazy to think that Schroeder provides a necessary drive and kick component that uh, would otherwise be kind of lacking. And, you know, plus 8.7 net rating per uh, CTG. That's by Chris Forsberg. They've definitely been getting better as of late. So I don't want to give up on that pairing just yet. Yeah, so uh, Alex, you alluded to this that. Uh, I think the minimum is 100 possessions on the season. Uh, the the Schroeder smart pairing are in the 84th percentile. Seth, I have a, a two-parter for you. First, uh, uh, well, second, I guess I want to hear what you were going to say about Marcus Smart that you were uh, teasing before we, we started. But um, my real question is, at what point do you start to really take stock of sample sizes in the NBA season? Do you think that we're still lying to ourselves or do you think that the numbers are actually starting to tell stories? So yes and no. Um, I would say you don't you don't completely discount it. It has been it has been non disastrous. That's right. that's that's so you can. It doesn't mean it won't prove to be disastrous later on, but it hasn't been disastrous so far. So that's a good thing. I mean, it's better to be you know plus eight whatever than it is to be minus eight whatever. At the same time, um, the sample size needed for like lineup units to be to have a really good handle on what it actually means um, is pretty high. And it's actually, to my mind, it's higher, the smaller the group of players is Um, just because there's so much else. If you're looking at, at just two players playing together, there's so much else going on with, with who they're playing with against that. You really want to get a a broad sample to get a a good handle on it. The, The rule of thumb for like a full lineup is maybe around 250 minutes you start to believe stuff around 500 minutes you feel pretty good unfortunately uh on average uh teams have about a lineup a season that gets yeah. to 500 minutes playing together a five-man unit so obviously you get minutes faster the smaller groups but then because there's the the other kind of the other pieces are so interchangeable and that that interchanging can have such an effect on how well the unit plays you do want a larger sample size so especially this early in the season i i always get a little um it, it makes me cringe just a little when it's like well their net rating is blah 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 together therefore they're pretty good together i'm always like slow down yeah we um, spend like three days saying sample size too small too small and then like game four we're like that's enough the math yeah, works it's not <laughs> Uh, what were you going to say about smart, uh, either in the context of Schroeder or just what do you um, got? In the, so in the context of Schroeder, and I think this is, um, as kind of the offensive talent on the Celtics has, uh, kind of been stripped away with, you know, Kyrie and, and Gordon Hayward and, and Kimball Walker departing, uh, the things that, that smart is lacking in terms of being a, a creator, um, both for himself and for others, uh, reliably are kind of um, foregrounded a little bit more, and and you know his his sort of complementary abilities as a playmaker, offensive re- uh, uh, secondary playmaker, offensive rebounder, uh, willing if not always super accurate shooter, um, uh, sort of become less important. And for for that reason, I think given especially with Brown out, how little shot creation there is. On this roster, I I, like if I had to pick between one of the two, I would go with Schroeder. He's never been my favorite player, but the Celtics roster this year is kind of short on shot creation at full strength. And now, um, you know, with with Brown down, 
Um, you need to find it somewhere because, you know, they have some guys who can, who can finish plays, uh, but someone's got to get, you know, Robert Williams or Ernst Smith or, or whoever else the ball in positions to be effective. And uh, you just look up and down the roster and there just aren't that many guys who could do that. And, you know, both, I think that's probably an area where you'd still like to see growth for both Tatum and Brown to begin with. And then you take one of them out and yeah, we need someone who can get, get other people involved in the offense to, to kind of give it some balance and just have it, just having enough scoring on the floor. Yeah. I have, I've said that as such, I, I think Schroeder is the de facto starting point guard to initiate the offense makes sense to me and smart as a plug and play six man off the bench as needed works more. But I've also said that that's because I cut my basketball teeth watching Rajan Rondo play. So I'm so used to like literally his archetype standing there and orchestrating an offense. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit because the Brown thing perhaps accentuates uh, another lineup uh, uh, facet for these Celtics, I suppose we could say, which is that the double bigs lineup is still a thing and it's great supposedly uh, with the caveat that maybe these samples don't actually mean anything Together, Rob Williams. Defensively, they're great. Defensively, they're great. And again, maybe the numbers don't mean anything. But yeah, Rob Williams and Horford are among the best frontline pairings in the NBA. Let's, Dr. Quinn, let's go to you. Tell us about the defense. Well, uh, I was one of the first people uh, that I know of who was you know, fairly on board with this idea of a double big lineup. Uh, most people being particularly scarred from the... Daniel Tice iterations of it. Uh, so far, what we're seeing is a defensive rating of uh, 93.55, which again, you know, super small sample size. And it's only when they're both on the court together that they get that number. Uh, I believe Ryan uh, Bernardoni was tweeting about this a little bit earlier. So I got the information from. And it's borne out in the eye test. But as, as Seth was hinting, uh, there's not a lot of offense coming through that. And I actually thought that there would be better offense um, coming when Al Horford was the lone big on the floor. But actually, when it's Time Lord, they have a much better offensive rating together than when they're together. So it's been kind of surprising to me that uh, it's been as playable as it has been. Like they've been sharing the floor a lot more than I thought. I thought it was going to be like more of like a, a quick sub out after starting the two of them. But you know, it's, a, it's been a pretty pretty present surprise so far. Seth, uh, we'll we'll talk all about your book and the the numbers behind modern NBA basketball, but certainly we don't see that many big front courts, with notable exceptions. So, what do you think of bucking this trend? And do you think it's a trend that needs to be bucked in the first place? Um, I think we are seeing a little bit more this year, actually. Um, I mean, right. the, the, the Cavs have had great success. with <laughs> That's with, like a quadruple with, big lineup. With the, but, but specifically, just the pairing of, of Jared Allen and, and Evan Mobley. And um, to be honest, I think that there's there are a little bit of similarities there. I don't think Al Horford is as mobile at this point as he had at three, but he is someone who can play out on the floor a little bit. And then um, in terms of, of a big who can play with another big, at least defensively, um, you know, I don't... I, Robert Williams is one of the best, I, to my mind, one of the best bigs in the league at, at switching out onto guards. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm very excited to talk about Robert Williams because I'm, I've been a, a huge fan of his for basically since since he was in college. Um, and I think some of the things you're seeing with the offense is one of the the interesting aspects about him is his skill level has always been something that's been been underrated a great deal. I think he's a a, a a good passer um in the a much better passer than 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 people uh have, have given him credit for and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily bear out in kind of the the assist or potential assist numbers but just his ability to kind of catch the ball on the move and and make the next play with it um while being a very mobile big and also obviously a tremendous like lob threat mm-hmm. um makes him a makes him a, a, a really kind of interesting piece to move around and, and use in, in, in various combinations. So I'm not, uh, well, that, that's on the offensive end. I'm not, so I'm not terribly surprised that defensively it's working either just because Horford is, has always been a, a smart, versatile defender. And even if his athleticism has declined that like the, the brain doesn't go away and, and, you know, 
Williams is a good interior defender who also, you know, if you play him with another big and he's the one who has to chase on the perimeter, that works fine too. So um, I, I don't mind that. And, and frankly, the, with the sort of the, the shallow talent base that the Celtics have um, just getting your good players on the floor together is never a bad plan. Yeah. Alex. Oh, sorry. No worries. Um, I was just going to jump in and say, you know, part of the reason also that uh, so defensively, obviously they've been great. I mean, Horford in particular looks spectacular defensively in a way that he really hasn't basically since he was last on the Celtics. Um, and, you know, just looking at kind of the stats, obviously small sample size aside, I think one reason that uh, the Celtics offensive rating might not be as high as we would have expected given how well they're playing on defense together. That is Robin Alice. It might be something as simple as Alice shooting 27% from deep this year. Um, and as those shots start to fall or as they start to come back a little closer to his career average, which is around 36%, hoping it does knock on wood, but um, perhaps as that number regresses or uh, kind of progresses more towards his career average, uh, you could start to see that pairing on the offensive end look a little bit cleaner. I also think that there is a lot to be said for the fact that um, right now the Celtics offensively are really trying to do a lot of playmaking from the guard position uh, more so than anything. And I think that Horford uh, is getting involved in the offense, but the best version of Horford as an offensive player is usually the guy that you see hanging around, hanging out around the elbows and making entry passes and doing these kind of short post-ups and things like that. And that guy we've seen a little bit of, but we haven't seen a huge amount of in part because I think the Celtics are really pushing the agenda of trying to get playmaking from their guards. Uh, I think as it becomes kind of, as Al kind of integrates himself more into the offense, you could start to see that those offensive numbers take up a good deal. I was just going to say that uh, Rob is being used on offense a little bit less this season. They seem to be pressuring the rim with him a little bit less. And the, like the lob threat that I expect to see a lot more of this season, particularly with him taking on a bigger role, hasn't quite materialized. And I'm wondering if that's just because everybody's still learning this new system. Mm-hmm. Uh and aren't necessarily comfortable in it or, or exactly what's going on with that. But to be honest, I actually thought we were going to see a lot more from Rob Williams on offense this year. I think that's, that's where the, the sort of the, the sort of drain on playmaking that, that there's been over the last three years that, that, that shows up. I mean, you can be the best lob threat in the world. You still need someone to come off the pick and roll and, and get into the space, draw the second defender enough and then make the pass. And you know, I think those are areas that that Tatum and Brown have improved on over their careers. But again, I mean, if you're if you're talking about like a big wing ball handler to do that, I think that Gordon Hayward's probably superior at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as a you know as a, a point guard creator, I would I would say you'd have to say that the version of at least the good version of Kyrie they got, then uh, and then the version of Kemba they got from for much of his time here is more reliable at that than, uh, than certainly Marcus smart. Um, now, and, and again, getting, getting Schroeder in, in the mix should help with that some, because while he's not, he's not the, the best playmaker in the world, he's an NBA point guard and he's been an NBA point guard and that, and, and NBA point guards can run a pick and roll and throw lobs to, to springy athletic guys. So I think that that's, that's a sort of, uh, the knock-on effect of getting Schroeder more involved from an off from a, just a, a lineup standpoint is it's the kind of thing that can unlock Williams a little bit more than, than you would with smart. So Seth, speaking of athletic guys, uh, your colleague, Sean Tarania broke some news uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, that was a great transition, Alex. Come on. Uh, you're shaking your head at the Ben Simmons thing. I'm sure. Uh, yes. The athletic had at first that perhaps, the Celtics and the Sixers have talked about a Ben Simmons trade and perhaps Jalen Brown would be included in that. Although other reporting swiftly and summarily denied that. So Seth, not, you don't have to say anything about the athletic side of this, but just as a, someone who watches the game, do you think that this trade makes sense for other parties? And what was your initial reaction? So first things first, this, this is one of those things that the, the, the um, reporting on it, I'm like, 
there's, 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 it's almost, it's almost certainly correct that they, the teams had talks about that. However, sure. that can range everything from, you know, you actually put a cap legal trade up on the board and discuss it to uh, Daryl Morey calls up Brad Stevens and says, Hey, uh, uh, what would you think about something involving uh, Jalen for Ben? Right. No. Okay. Click there. We talked about it. Um, and that, and so that's a lot of times when things get reported and it's having been discussed, um, that's about the level it reaches. Um, and, you know, it depends on where, where it gets sourced from. If, it, if it's coming from either the, either the front offices, just as a throwaway, it might be nothing. If it gets to the point where the sourcing is maybe from the agent side, then it might actually be a little more serious. But again, we don't, for obvious reasons, we don't always know what the sourcing is on that. So the degree of seriousness is, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, more often than not, it's the kind of thing that just kind of get got talked about in passing and never goes anywhere. Um, From a basketball standpoint, um, I no, I, it's it's. I actually, I mean, I frankly, I think I would like that deal a little more from the Celtic side than from the the, wow. the Sixer side. Um, just in in part because I think I think Jalen Brown is a little bit duplicative of Tobias Harris, or mm-hmm. Tobias Harris is a little bit duplicative of of Jalen Brown, however you want to say that. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're maybe net getting back well. With, they're getting back more than they're putting in with the zero they're getting from Ben Simmons this yeah. year, obviously. But I mean, I think you're you you recognize that you have a borderline All NBA level player in Ben Simmons, and and you know the the addition of Brown minus what it took away from Harris would probably be less than that. And then for the Celtics, um, that's playmaking. That's more big, versatile defense. Um, you obviously you don't love the lack of shooting, but for a guy who's going to be with the ball in his hands a lot, which I think he would probably be ball in hands more for the Celtics than he's ever been consistently for the 76ers. Um, kind of the lack of outside shooting becomes less of a worry. The um, wor- the unwillingness to get fouled would probably be the bigger <laughs> worry from an offensive standpoint, but um, people don't like Ben Simmons for reasons some of which are good some of which are not and that obscures the fact that he's really good like he's right. a he's a top 20 player in the nba when uh, when he's healthy um and you know you don't you you don't add those players without giving you know good players up but i think that um you know from a pure basketball perspective i think it would make the celtics better now when you start to factor in kind of the availability concerns and the possible chemistry concerns, then maybe that tilts it the other way. But from a pure basketball standpoint, I, I, I think that would be a deal that would make sense for Boston. Wow. I, I'm willing to agree with you. I, I, I'm surprised at how much I'm willing to agree with you. I suspect I disagree, but going back to the Marcus Smart conversation, if that's what you're going to get from Marcus Smart, Ben Simmons is just a better version of that. Uh, that said, Alex, I know you disagree. Do you want to chime in? I disagree quite strongly. Thank you, Cameron. So um, I have a couple of reasons for my disagreement. The first of which is that I definitely want to throw in that I don't think Ben Simmons is a bad basketball player by any means. I think that he earned his all-star selection. He's earned his all-NBA selections. That's great. Here's the thing about Ben Simmons is that one, Ben Simmons is on a full max contract. Uh, Jalen Brown is not on a full max contract. They are the same age. Two, Ben Simmons has to me shown almost no desire or ability to improve his game even marginally from what it has been. Ben Simmons is effectively a slightly better version of the player that he came in as a rookie as. Uh, The fact that he is not only unwilling to shoot, but actively afraid of getting fouled, I just don't see how you can reconcile that with trying to be a championship level NBA team, especially in the postseason. Ben Simmons puts up great numbers in the regular season. His defensive metrics are off the chart. 
There's no question that he's an elite rim finisher and passer. And he does all sorts of different things well. But if this guy is not willing to get fouled in a game seven on the road in the playoffs, that's a disaster for your franchise. And there's just no credible argument to me that he's shown that he can be that guy. Um, and the last thing that I want to throw in there is that I think there's this idea that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are redundant and that for some reason they need to be broken up. And that's been like thrown around ad nauseum on Twitter. They both take the shots. They both have the ball in their hands. They both do the same things. Well, why? Why do they need to be broken up? Why is it bad to have two guys who do those things really, really well? I am strongly of the belief that the problem with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum is not Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. The problem is that they've never had the right mix of guys around them to be a title contending team. When they did have the right mix of guys around them, one of those guys snapped his leg in half in seven minutes of game time. So I'm totally out on this idea that, that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown need to be broken up. And I'm especially out on the idea that they need to be broken up for a guy who has proven that when the lights shine brightest and when the games matter the most, he is not up to the challenge. I am firmly and completely out on trading Jalen Brown for Ben Simmons. And I don't think there's any statistical argument that can get me to support it. So like I said, people don't like Ben Simmons. Um, I know the, 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 no, the, 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 but the counterpoint to that would be like, yes, you, you talk about the, uh, the, the poor, there's, there's no other way around like the poor performance against Atlanta in the playoff last year. Uh, the question is, would, uh, you need to uh, drive the bus forward and backwards over him as repeatedly as Doc Rivers did. And, <laughs> would, and, and does, and would that change anything? And, and, but, but, but seriously, like, Ben Simmons is a player who ha- who is best used in a very specific way, and that's a way he just never really, especially in the postseason, has never really had a chance to do that in Philadelphia because their best player is Joel Embiid. So they can't do they can't do sort of the you know the the somewhere between Giannis and Scotty Barnes thing with, yeah. with him that that would be that would maximize him. So. Um, while those are, I think, I think those are reasonable points that, that, that Alex brings up. And I think that that sort of factors into the, the personality slash chemistry reasons that might lead you to not want to do it. Um, I, I think that only goes, that, that only goes so far, but I don't, I, 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 uh, I mean, I would put it this way. If I was, if I was Brad Stevens, I don't know if I would do it. Yeah on balance because as you mentioned there's the cap concerns and the chemistry concerns and you're right there is no need to break up Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum the question is is you're if you're making a trade like this you're not doing it because you're trying to break them up you're doing it because you think okay Jalen I think I think Jalen Brown is is B plus and Ben Simmons is A minus and if you don't think that you don't do it but if you're doing it that's why you're doing it or you have a, a third star that you're angling for and you're, you're building your new big three or something. JQ, what were you going to say? Uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, Seth notes that for basketball reasons, and I think that's the important takeaway. There's all the other reasons that we've talked about that have been the primary reasons I am not into such, such a, uh, a deal. And there's also the history to consider because I mean, we all have very fresh in our memories the, the Kyrie Irving era in our minds. And you can't necessarily discount the potential for locker room disruptions. And this guy has proven that he has absolutely no qualms whatsoever. And, you know, some of it as being thrown under the bus is a good example of are very well-founded reasons to, to be, and I don't want to say a locker room cancer, but a locker room discontent. So for me, it's mostly just the, 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 the cap concerns, the, the um, situation that we are watching unfold right now and not really, you know, I just can't even imagine covering this team. If something like that were to happen with him at this <laughs> point, it would just be like a nuclear implosion in the fan base. One final reason that I'm just going to throw in that is worth considering has actually nothing to do with Ben Simmons or Jalen Brown. Um, it has to do with another pretty important guy in this equation, which is Jason Tatum. 
Uh, yeah. Now, Jason Tatum just signed a five-year max deal with the Celtics. Uh, he's got a player option at the end of that deal, so it's possible that he could opt out. He probably will, since he's going to get a gigantic max contract almost immediately after opting out. Um, that being said, uh, I think you also have to consider in this idea of trading Jalen Brown for Ben Simmons, what does that do to Jason Tatum and to Jason Tatum's future with this team? I don't know what Jason Tatum's relationship is with Ben Simmons. I, I don't know what his relationship is with anybody really, uh, except I do know that whether they are buddy, buddy, best friends or not, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown respect the crap out of each other. Those guys will go to war for one another over and over and over again. And given all of the aforementioned concerns we have with Ben Simmons, and to be clear, like if Ben Simmons is genuinely suffering from mental health issues with regard to the game of basketball, I want to encourage him to take the space necessary to deal with that. That's a serious thing. Uh, and you know, I, I hope that he's able to handle that in his life uh, and, and get back on the court because Ben Simmons is really good. But I don't think that that's the kind of move that you can make unless you're 100% sure that Jason Tatum is 100% on board with it. And I just really don't see a world, given the history of this team, the history of how much Jason and Jalen respect each other and have shown that they respect each other and their presences in this locker room. I just don't see how flipping Jalen Brown for Ben Simmons gives Jason Tatum a good impression of where this team is headed as he heads into his next contract. And I realize his next contract hasn't started yet, but I'm thinking four years down the line. So I love that we said these sample sizes don't matter. And this reporting might've been a text message. And then we got (laughs) 25 minutes of a podcast out of it. Uh, So Quickly, 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 some just news in the Celtics orbit, and then let's hop into the Celtics lab and Seth talk about your actual book, some real actual reporting. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, Peyton, I almost couldn't remember his name. Peyton Pritchard is leaning into the uh, PP thing. He has a new logo trademark. Uh, perhaps there's going to be Peyton Pritchard PP merchandise. And if anyone's... if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, goodness, they're probably very confused. Uh, so good job, Fast PP. Tatum uh, is in, investing in something called Hyperice, which is a recovery uh, formula for the NFL and the NBA. Good for him. And then uh, we didn't have it on our notes. I, we haven't talked about this, but let's let's move on regardless. Ime Odoka backed off on the, the captain's thing. So maybe we will... Uh, Justin's nodding knowingly. I was teaching. It's not my fault. Uh, maybe uh, next podcast we'll talk about that. But let's let's hop right into the Celtics lab because Seth, we have asked you on not to defend Ben Simmons, but to talk about this book. Your book is called "The Mid Range Theory: Basketball's Evolution in the Age of Analytics." So let's just start right off the top. How did because this isn't your first foray into analytics? You previously were the director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. You have worked in econ and grant writing and law. You have an appetite for the nitty gritty and the patient. How did how did you first of all decide that you, you have a handle on that? Because I teach intro to econ and a lot of kids don't have it. But also, how did you realize that the analytics of basketball what were what was engaging you? Um. So the 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 short slash long version is I've always been into sports statistics. I was the kid who. Uh, you know, did score sheets for RBI baseball, you know, when playing on the, back when, you know, before even the Nintendos had the batteries, like in baseball stars, we could mm-hmm. actually save the stats. I kept stats because um, I played sports growing up. I played basketball up through, uh, you know, my first couple of years of college. And um, uh, so I was, and kind of the love of this, of the sport and as well as sports statistics, it was always something I had kind of noodled in. Sure. Um, I think I came up, I, I didn't come up with, I, I helped my best friend's dad uh, kind of implement in my, the first time I did a player rating system when I was 10 or 12. Um, there's a video game that had an editor that basically lets you 
uh, go in and plug in kind of historically great teams. So, so if you wanted to see how, say, the 86 Celtics would match up with the, I don't know, 91 Bulls, you kind of needed a, a way to rate those players. And, um, uh, and it was not a very in-depth game. So there's only six stats, but we had a system that you, we used to kind of translate box score stats into those. So that was the first time I did that. And then, um, you know, after college, I certainly stayed very, you know, involved as a fan of the NBA, uh, played in some very detailed fa- fantasy leagues. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, one of the fantasy leagues I played in um, produced uh, three heads of analytics in the NBA. So right. it was not, uh, it was a... Uh, did you ever win the league? Uh, yes. Yeah, um, you did. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, actually, uh, uh, one of the years I, I won the league, it was on the back of Ben Simmons. So uh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it was Ben, ben Simmons. I think I had Ben Simmons, Anthony Davis, and Boogie Cousins at the same time. It was, it was all good. Um, that's not here or there. Um, so I kind of, uh, I'd start, like I, I, you mentioned, I studied econ in, in college, and it just always sort of made sense to me. And I applied that to sort of... Um, looking at, I guess, the basketball from a marginal gains perspective. And Mm -hmm. that led to, especially once the NBA started releasing player tracking data in the 2013-14 season, just kind of trying to figure out ways in which players were actually bringing value to a team. Um, The first sort of big metric that I did that I felt pretty happy with that I was explaining something was using that data to try to put a value on rim protection and, and get beyond just like the sort of the binary of block shots and not, but also take into account, you know, now that we can see to some degree who is inducing misses at the rim and who is preventing shots from being even being taken at the rim in the first place, if that's more inferential than directly measuring to really get a, a better handle on, on who is actually um, moving the scoreboard in a favorable direction. Now in the case of rim protection, obviously you're, you're doing that by hold, by keeping the other team from scoring, but still mm-hmm. that's, we don't do it. We don't do as much of that kind of measurement on defense. And so that was sort of one of the first things I did. And then did the number of other kind of studies along a similar vein and um put it in writing on, on, you know, first my own blog and then the nylon calculus website I, I helped found and, and um, uh, some other sites and, and sort of somewhere along that process started to have conversations with NBA teams and eventually a role kind of coalesced with the bucks and did that for three and a half seasons. And, and uh, summer 2019 kind of moved back to the public space and um, right around the all-star break last year, uh, triumph books got in touch with me and said, Hey, write a book about basketball analytics for us. And I said, okay. And uh, it's now coming out one week from now. That's a fast timeline now. Hey, yes, <laughs> it felt very, it did. It felt very fast. The, uh, the, uh, uh, the NBA screwed me basically. <laughs> I was planning on, I, fr- no, frankly, I was planning on getting a lot of it done like next, you know, late, late November, December and January. And then the league was like, no, actually we're playing. Um, I was like, oh, so I guess I'm, I'm covering basketball and, writing a book at the same time, which I would not recommend. Um, <laughs> um, but it got done and I'm, you know, it's the kind of thing you read it back and you're always, you now all you just, all you see is all the places it could be better. But if I'm trying to be objective about it, I think it turned out pretty well. Um, it being my own harshest critic. So um, yeah, no, I'm really excited for it to come out and, and, and people to read it. And uh, I know there's some things in there that, uh, that, that people will yell at me for, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm used to that by now. So like, I, it, as, as, long as, they, as long as they paid for it to read it so they can yell at me, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> That's a fair exchange. I actually, I, I wanted to know more about your, your educational background because I ended up getting into uh, – MBA coverage uh, as a research assistant, uh, assistant for the Bureau of Economic and Business Research at the University of Florida. And I may or may not have been reading the nylon calculus while I was supposed to be working. Uh, but it seems to me that there's um, a pretty good reason why you would like Time Lord after what you were just telling us about, you know, like seeing, like, how do you quantify 
when James Harden starts approaching him for the second time after having his shot rejected by him and says, nope, I'm going to do something else. You know, like, how do you measure that? Um, to me, that's like some, one of the more fascinating things about analytics is how do we measure, you know, things that are more like a, as you said, an inference. And um, hopefully you can tell us a little bit more about um, how the book does that. Um, well, I will say that, that I, I, tried to avoid, uh, I think there are two equations in the entire book. I really tried to avoid um, making it too mathy because I think that one of the issues that analytics has in basketball uh, and sports in general is that they're like the technique uh, by which some of these things are developed can be almost exclusionary and and be more of a barrier when we're, we're just talking about basketball. And, you know, what you just said about, you know, trying to figure out a way to measure. That's a basketball thing you're talking about measuring. It's not a statistical thing. Um, and the short version, it's very tricky because uh, there's a lot of levers moving on here. Like there are players who can show up as being, you know, very good at preventing shots at the rim, but that's because they never leave the paint versus players who are very good at prevent, preventing shots at the rim because they are very intimidating. And those are kind of different things. Um, you know, if you're, if you know, Hassan Whiteside is the guy who opponent rim attempts go down when he's in the game, but opponent open threes go up. So it's like what, you know, the, the balance there is off. Um, but you can see, you can look from a rim protection standpoint, you can do some stuff and see, you know, how, whether or not when the players on the floor, opponents shoot more at the rim, but more directly, you can also just, you can, it's beyond just like, you know, a, the best shot blocker in the league will block two and a half shots a game he will defend 10, 11. And, you know, yes, those block shots will go in 0% of the time, but if he takes those shots at the rim and, you know, those shots are 60-ish, maybe a little higher uh, when contested by kind of an average big man, if against him those shots are, are they're made at like 52% over the year, like you can measure what that's worth in terms of, of the points that are saved by, you know, if, okay, if that's, you know, 400 shots a year and he, they're, they're missed 10% more often, like the math is pretty straightforward there, you know, and then it's, it's a little more complicated than that, obviously offensive rebounds, fouls and so on, but that's really where you start to get at, you know, again, sort of the marginal gains of if I'm a little bit better here, or if I'm a little bit better at getting in position to contest the rim, so that even if I, I'm not the best player in the league at holding percentages down, I'm there a lot. So there's fewer open layups when I'm on the floor. Um, these, these are sort of the little levers you can look at. And it's not, none of them are dispositive that this player is a good defender or a good rim protector, but they are part of, they're, they're sort of part of the puzzle you put together to get a, an overall sort of a more, more holistic sense of, of what a player does and how what he does impacts the game. So, Seth, uh, along those lines, I want to ask you specifically about the Celtics and their offense this season, but I have two quick hitters about the book kind of process wise, and then we'll get kind of into the meat and potatoes of it. First, what was something you were surprised you learned in writing this either about basketball or about writing? (laughs) Um, I think that the thing about writing it is that uh, um, you learn exactly how much you can stand to hear yourself talk. (laughs) Like by the end of writing it, I was absolutely sick of my inner monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, what, a, what an asshole this guy is at a certain point. Um, so I think, I think that's the biggest one. Um, let me see. I think of the, of the, the one thing I kind of, when I was just messing around looking at topics, the one thing that, that, that's, that I found really interesting and surprising and was a jumping off point for a full chapter in the book was, from kind of a top level statistical perspective, like before you get into, you know, um, you know, on off or, or impact metrics, how similar players DeMar DeRozan and Jimmy Butler wow. have been for, and, and just, and, and just starting from there and seeing what, where that takes you about why, you know, um, I think DeRozan is probably someone who the degree to which kind of the analytics community does not like him has been exaggerated. Um, we, he's a good player. He just, he's, he's never someone we, he'd been talked about, you know, oftentimes as sort of a franchise level player. And it's like, he's maybe a, like from a, a, a metric standpoint has been kind of a fringy all-star player. And that's, you know, the difference between being a top 30 player and a top 10 players in terms of impact is enormous. 
Um, so, but that's right. if, it, um, but, but if that's the, if, but why Jimmy Butler is kind of that, that, you know, top 15 borderline top 10 player and DeMar DeRozan isn't, even though from like a, a sort of a fantasy stats perspective, they look pretty similar. Um, and that's, that's a really interesting jumping off point for sort of what matters in basketball. Interesting. Wow. I don't know if that's a surprising from Jimmy Butler's perspective or DeMar DeRozan's perspective. All right. Let's uh, one more thing before we hop into the Celtic stuff and maybe you have something great or maybe not so much. Tim Bontemps, Timmy Good Times does the forward for the book. Do you have a Tim Bontemps story that you could share or he was just nice enough to write the forward? Um, I don't think there's any Tim Bontemps stories that I can share. Uh, Tim, Tim has been a friend for, for, uh, for a long time. He was one of kind of one of the national writers who kind of, I guess, took a liking to me sort of early in my writing mm-hmm. and had me on his podcast several times. And we stayed friends kind of, uh, you know, through that time. And then through the time I was working with the Bucks, and now certainly after, and, and I, and I thought he would be a, 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 a good person to write it because he, he he knows sort of how I think about things well. And, and I think uh, did a really nice job in, in sort of uh, setting the table for, for what I wanted to talk about in, in the book. And I'm uh, was very, very grateful that he, that he uh, decided to do so. Um, I think, I think the, the, the good bond temp stories probably are uh, offline over a beverage more than uh, for public consumption. Fair enough. Yeah. I have met, uh, Tim one time in passing way back when at the garden and he was very kind to me. So that all checks out. All right. Let's have the books about the mid range ostensibly. Um, a few other things, maybe <laughs> uh, let's talk about the mid range though. So you are kind of making the case that the mid range shot got a bad rep in kind of the pop culture analytics merger of the, the 20 teens when the average fan got uh, wise to analytics, maybe we completely, overlooked the mid-range or maybe I'm wrong about this you can tell me otherwise but Boston certainly is kind of pushing for people like Jalen Brown to operate in that forbidden mid-range space so first and foremost what do you think is the state of the mid-range in the NBA for better or for worse and second how do you see it being expressed with the Celtics um so I think I don't I'm not sure the mid-range per se has gotten a bad rap so much as what shots from the mid range have vanished hasn't been really well accounted for. Um, the, the, the shortest version is, 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 you know, okay. You have, a, if say you have a hundred shots, 20 of them used to be threes, 40 of them are threes. Now that means 20 shots that used to be something else. Aren't there those 20 shots that used to be something else are from the mid range, but they're not the sort of sexy mid range shots that the star players take. They're the pick and pop 19 footer. They're the, you're, they're the small forward spotting up at 19 feet on the baseline after two ball reversals. There's, it, uh, I, I was talking about this earlier and someone accused me of David West erasure. And that's, and I think that's, that's, that's exactly right. It's, it's that kind of area where um, sort of recognizing that three is greater than two and shooting percentages by NBA level players on 19 footers aren't, really much higher than they are in 24 footers and standing back that extra step and a half has additional benefits in terms of provide of spacing. Um, the other guys aren't standing in places where they can catch and shoot mid range shots. Now, some of the kind of the, the, I like to call them star shots that the high usage players who are creating off the dribble a lot. Some of those shots are, have moved back behind the arc, but that's, you know, that's, Steph and Dame and James Harden right. and Trey Young and maybe a few other guys for the most part. That's a, that's a very limited subset of, of players who are, who are driving most of that increase. For the Jason Tatums and as he's improved, Jalen Brown's in the world, like they're taking the same number of mid-range shots as they were taking, the same number of unassisted mid-range shots as the similar level players were 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the guy, the guy, the ball in hands operator who gets to the end, who end of the shot clock gets the elbow and pulls up or comes off and pick and roll and the defense doesn't respect it. So, okay, you're gonna have to come guard me or I'm going to shoot this. Um, and it serves almost as a bluff, you know, in a poker standpoint, um, they're still doing that at the same rate that they were years ago. So it's the, like, 
Um, I, you know, I, I've, I've sort of termed it in the past that it wasn't the, the, the mid range isn't the lost art. It's the inartful shots that have largely gone away. Um, and, and I think in, in the book, to the extent I'll give it away in talking about this, I, I, I talked about both the sort of the, the metrics, the mathematical, the analytic reasons why this happened, but also the changes in sort of rules and play style and skill set, particularly among among big men, among fours and fives that have kind of driven a lot of this change. And uh, so to illustrate that it's not just like, oh, the nerds showed up with their calculators and now everyone shoot th- shoots threes. It's like, no, the, you know, rule changes and, and you know, the sort of the decline in people learning to be back to the basket bigs in part because coaches were more willing to let, you know, your Lamar Odoms, your Kevin Garnett's, what have you, lose their full range of skills and face the basket. And, and all of these things sort of combined to have have effects that express themselves in taking more threes. And that only got into that, that sort of, uh, yes, the recognition that threes greater than two sort of provide a rocket field for that. But it was, it was a trend that was happening kind of before analytics was a, quote unquote, analytics was a big thing throughout the NBA. Seth, one thing that strikes me about the mid-range, I think you're spot on in saying that, you know, for a number of players, particularly in this kind of star shot category, the mid-range is a perfectly viable weapon and something that they employ to great effect. I think of like DeMar DeRozan as a perfect example. This is a guy who, wow, he's changed his range up a little bit and is hitting more threes. He's made, you know, a very successful and long career in the NBA, largely off of just being a mid-range killer. But one thing that I've kind of noticed, you know, just watching the league really over the past 10, 15 years or so, is that the stars are taking a similar amount of of mid-range shots. The bench guys and the fifth starter guys, those are the guys for who the mid-range has really kind of fallen off a cliff. Do you have any kind of additional thoughts on that? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think the guys you you kind of would like to be out of the way. Um, you know, they the like I just said, the, the shot is worth a point more. So you have a little bit of uh, wiggle room for them to shoot slightly worse. But also, again, creating that extra space that the defense has to cover has, you know, benefits well beyond the efficiency of that shot. Um, and I think just uh, offenses being more intelligent about where they have players kind of standing when they're not involved in the play, I think it has, has led to a lot of that because, you know, if a player catch if, if something good has happened in an offense to the point where a player can catch the ball and shoot it for reasonable shooter, something good has happened to, for that player to be open. So of course you want that player on his own to be standing in a spot that maximizes what that shot is worth. And, you know, three is greater than two and, and, you know, a 38% three is is quite obviously better than a 42% two. Um, But it's also it, it, but having that extra space then has the knock on effect of the next guy gets more open shots because his defender has further to close out and so on and so forth. So what you're saying is Marcus Smart should just launch because he's creating space regardless of if the shots go in. Marcus Smart gets guarded. Yeah. Like that's 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 um you know is he uh many times especially for kind of middling three-point shooters um this is something that is observable kind of in in the the metrics but it's also something if you talk to coaches like they're much more concerned about who's willing to shoot than they are you know, who's good, like, you know, at the very edge, like, you know, a Russell Westbrook or a Giannis is going to shoot good. But, you know, once a guy gets into like the, 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 the lower mid thirties, it's like, okay, well, if he's going to shoot it every time. Maybe tonight's the, the game. He bangs six of them on us and we lose. Right. So we got to close out on him. Now, maybe that changes a little bit in the playoffs when you can really dial in the specific tendencies and stuff like that. But over the regular season, like, a guy who will shoot at the volume Marcus Smart does gets guarded. And that, you know, the difference between a a 38% shooter who doesn't get guarded and 34% shooter who does, I think that the the extra spacing that he provides easily makes up for what's actually a reasonably small difference in kind of points over the course of a season between, between like those two percentages. So there's been chatter 
basically nonstop since Udoko was hired that he's going to bring Spurs mentality, Spurs ethos, Spurs playbooks to the <laughs> You guys can't see the, the amount of stuff just rolled his eyes. I haven't even finished the question. Uh, so Spurs 2.0, San Antonio of the North, go Celtics go. It's early. I don't know how much Celtics basketball you've been able to watch. I mean, I've admittedly been listening on the radio more than watching. Do you see an attempt to recreate what the Spurs have had in San Antonio with this Boston team? Or do you think that that's just people are making assumptions? I think people are making assumptions. Um, a lot of the, the quote spur, like the, the Spurs way stuff is, is, is as much about like Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan and, and Manu Ginobili as it is, you know, the X's and O's. Um, so uh, and on, on some level, like everyone runs Spursy stuff now. Like everyone runs that runs like a baseline hammer play, right? Right. Um, so would I expect him to to import the same playbook? Probably not. I mean, does he have does he have the talents to to really run like the classic Spurs playbook? I don't think so. I mean, that's you know the you, you want you talk about like the you know the thirteen fourteen beautiful game Spurs like that's you know, you, who's your, your, your fifth worst playmaker on the floor is Boris. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Like that's a different, that's a different thing we're talking about in terms of, of the ability to, to create kind of flowing offense. And that's not a, yeah, the Spurs reached that level, but they reached that level in, in part because their talents, that's what their talent indicated for right. them to play. Um, it's, because of their talent, Celtics are going to play more isolation basketball because that's the direction their talent is. I mean, if you, you start with, you know, you talked about the, the pairing of, 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 of not needing to break up the pairing of, of Brown and Tatum. Yeah. Because you have two very good, get the ball in the wing, go to work guys. Um, and, and, you know, why would you want an egalitarian motion system that puts the ball in Aaron Neesmith's hands as much as it does Jason Tatum's? That doesn't make any sense. So, um, so short version is no, I don't think he's, he's imposed kind of spursy offensive principles because in part, I don't really think, I think that's just kind of a, a misnomer. That's really almost taken more from, from football than it is in basketball. I don't, to my, there isn't, a lot of evidence that coaches kind of import the playbooks of their mentors with like the possible uh, Phil Jackson triangle um, example as, as there is kind of the, the sort of the, the, the Bill Walsh West coast offense thing that there was, that was that permeated the NFL for so long. So I think that um, to the extent that the Spurs way is something that is, transferable i think it's more about the oh, sort of a way of doing business than it is like uh anything schematic tim duncan isn't walking through that door to paraphrase <laughs> legendary celtics coach because you didn't win the lottery rick <laughs> yeah we're not sure about that in boston still certainly not all right seth i know that the book isn't out yet but i like any good millennial found it found it. Um, so I was reading a bit and the section on triple doubles, I, I really loved. If you'll indulge, I'm going to just read the, the snippet that you have at the top, which is when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure without giving too much away. Cause I heard he did. What do you think about the currency that is triple doubles and you can name names, <coughs> Russell Westbrook, or you can keep it vague. Um, no, so basically, so as I discussed in that chapter, like the triple double was something that gained currency as a way to sort of, you know, identify like the all court goodness that was Magic Johnson. It wasn't really a thing before that. Sure. Um, and it's and, and it's still. I mean, it's it's hard to have a have a bad game if if you're if you have a triple double, but your impact on the game, if you're playing basketball and you're playing basketball leads to you collecting, you know, 10 rebounds and 10 assists as well as whatever, however many points you're scoring. Um, that's one thing. If you're playing basketball and you're trying to get 10 rebounds and 10 assists rather than trying to play winning basketball, 
yeah, some of those things are going to have a positive impact, but it's not the same thing as if you were just, if those were the product of good basketball. And that's where the, 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 the desire to chase a triple double um, almost changes, changes how indicative statistical achievement is of, of good basketball. For, for lack of a better term. Oh, then, you know, for, for a player like Westbrook, sort of the classic example is you, you can look and see which players grab the, for the most of their rebounds are uncontested defensive rebounds because about 55, 60% of missed shots in the NBA, basically like the offense, at this point, the offense sort of concedes and somebody on the defense ends up with. And to some extent, you can almost assign those. And when Westbrook was going after triple dog, Sorry, we got cut off there, but uh, um, the, but those sort of free rebounds can get assigned almost to a player. And so Westbrook's 10 are maybe a player who isn't actively trying to get every rebound, uh, maybe the equivalent of seven. Sure. Now, from a fantasy perspective, it's still 10, but from an impact on, on sort of, okay, a defensive rebound to a team has a certain value – are his 10 rebounds adding the same value as, as, you know, a, a more, as, as, a, as if Steven Adams grabbed 10 rebounds, for example, the answer is no, they're not. Right. Um, so does that mean he's having bad games when he's having triple doubles? No, it just means that they're not the same thing as it was when magic Johnson was just doing magic Johnson things and ending up with a triple double messing around and uh, getting a triple double, if you will. No, Steve Adams, I mean, I went to Pitt, so I'm biased, but he must be the most patient person in the NBA because <laughs> there were times where he was in West, Westbrook was in his lap getting the rebound. So, Seth, we'll get you out of here with three quick questions, although if you have a lot to say, I mean, I'm not going anywhere. So in, in thinking about analytics as a tool for teams, because you've been on the inside, so uh, you can look at it from the inside perspective, the journalist perspective, the fan perspective, but from a team organization perspective, what do you think of some of the experiments you're seeing in the G league and some of the attempts to reinvent the wheel? Do you think that they're as best you can tell grounded in something, or do you think that it's, it makes for a good headline? Um, I, I like that teams are experimenting. I question whether the G league environment tran- tells you how much it tells you that is translatable to the NBA from a sort of an on-court strategy perspective. Um, I mean, the, the biggest reason is, is there just aren't good big men in the G league. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a big deal <laughs> for, for NBA basketball, uh, especially defensively. That's sort of the key for many defensive schemes. And so stuff might work that um, if, you know, Marshall Plumley is the best big man on the floor that doesn't, totally happen if it's you know that you know you you don't have to get that high up the nba totem pole for it to be a categorically different thing cheap shot at marshall blumley all right uh next quickie before we're out of here uh which i never would have considered that i'm not a big g league fan so is there in your in writing your book or any other kind of analytics work, I guess I'll give you the run-up, the nylon calculus stuff, the buck stuff, really the past, let's say, decade. Is there a player that just come hell or high water does not fit the analytics mold that just the numbers can't pin that player down and they end up being way more valuable or helpful than you could ever quantify? Um, the, I think the, the I, one of the players that is the hardest to get a good handle on is Clay Thompson. Wow, that's fascinating. That that's so surprising to me. Um, well, you think about it. I mean, he because of who's on his team, he he has not actually racked up huge kind of peripheral statistics. Sure, but he's a, but he's a guy who sort of um, you've seen it various times in the playoffs that the sort of the latent value of what he can provide is pretty spectacular. And you do wonder if he'd ever been put in like a position that like Zach Levine is in now, what it would have looked like. And then um, I've always thought he's a, he's an excellent to border on elite defensive player, but he's, he's yeah. the, the kind of player that is the hardest to get a handle on defensively or one of them um, sort of there's two archetypes, one that's very easy to overrate, which is the 
you know, mediocre defensive big who happens to rebound and block shots. And the other hand is the, is the good wing defender who doesn't get a lot of steals or rebounds. Right. Um, and so it's, it's very hard to pick up on what they're doing because so much of, of the, um, the goodness sort of doesn't show up anywhere directly in stats and has to all be inferential. And then for a player who's are, who's on a already like historically elite defensive team, it's hard to pick out where his contributions to that start and, you know, and, you know, Draymond Green or, or Andre Iguodala or, or Andrew Pogut for, for a number of years where, where they're, they're started. So he's a, he's a player who's, who's really, tough to get a handle on. Like, I think we all know he's, he at least prior to these injuries was a, a fantastic all-star level player. But again, are we talking about a, a top 40 guy, a top 30 guy, not certainly wasn't a top 10 guy, but was he a, a top 20 guy? It, it's it, from a pure metric standpoint, it's kind of hard to tell. Sure. Well, I love big Smokey. I never would have picked that. I would have thought for sure you could quantify it. Great. It's fantastic. All right. Uh, Let's let's do one more. What, as best you could tell, what's the future of offense in the NBA? And that can be informed by what you know about the AAU circuit, what you know about what's happening behind closed doors, or just a good old fashioned off the cuff guess. Um, I I feel like the next innovation in the NBA is going to be on the defensive side. Um, okay. The 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 defenses are maybe just now catching up to sort of the implications of the three point era. Um, for a number of years, uh, I think but that's part of where all this, the switching is coming from. Um, I think teams are being much more intelligent about um, when they choose to rotate off of shooters. Um, there used to be just a lot, almost a, uh, a plague of, of over-rotation, um, of over-help to players that weren't in threatening spots. And I think the league as a whole has gotten smarter about that, but they still haven't quite cracked the nut. And I think when that happens, and I don't know what it is, it might be this, it might be more kind of universal switching. Um, when that happens, sort of the next offensive move is going to be a counter to that. So I kind of have to wait and see what the what the defensive, what the next defensive hotness is before the the offensive innovation kind of kicks in. Another great answer I never would have come up with, obviously. I mean, that's why you wrote the book and I didn't. Uh, so, yeah, the NBA better lock down that TV money before defense takes over, I guess. Seth Pardnow, you write for The Athletic, and you have a new book out. It's called The Mid-Range Theory, Basketball's Evolution in the Age of Analytics. Divine Sweater has shows that you should look out for, too, but you should really go and uh, grab this book. I've read a little bit of it illegally and it was it was really tremendous so Seth thanks so much for coming on shakes fist yeah (laughs) will never pin me down yeah really and truly Seth fantastic but we're really thankful that you took time to uh, come talk to us well thanks for having me on I enjoyed it yeah Uh, for everyone who listened go grab the book go grab the second copy and uh, go grab a Divine Sweater album while you're out there thanks for listening